Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has settled into a grueling, vicious war of attrition. Since both sides still seem to believe they can win, there is no end in sight. At the same time, there is a growing consensus in NATO capitals that long war not only favors Russia, but has the potential for some nasty, unintended consequences. What does not seem to exist in NATO capitals is a strategy to do something about it. Tactics galore. Send more weapons, impose more sanctions, threaten the Chinese, cheer Zelensky's Churchillian speeches, but define an endgame missing in action, which leaves Russia and its Chinese sponsor in the driver's seat for the war and perhaps for the diplomacy. Anna Weislander is a Swedish defense and security expert who is, among other things, director for Northern Europe at the Atlantic Council. She has had the temerity to point out that the emperor has no clothes, or more to the point, no strategy. So today we're going to talk about what it might take to end this war, one way or the other, and some of those unintended consequences. Welcome, Anna, and thanks for joining Tilburg's New Thinking for a New World. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. Let's start with something you published recently. You wrote that, quote, fear rather than courage still dominates among Western leaders, unquote. Please explain. Well, it was one of the conclusions that I drew having listened to world leaders at the Munich Security Conference, the big security conference uh, that runs in February every year. I was there last year as well. That was just a few days before uh, the full Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And there were a lot of bold words at that time, but no bold action. Um, a lot of things have happened since, but I had expected much more um, uh, where we are at the moment with the uh, war in Ukraine, given Western unity that, uh, you know, we have to stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's one of the rhetoric. Uh, Ukraine will win and all of this. But but I was still and I am still lacking, you know, bold actions and a strategy ahead to kind of make sure that this is what will happen in, in the future. So you talked about, as I said, fear uh, rather than courage um, and had some very specific ideas in mind. What do these leaders fear? Well, I think they fear along four dimensions, as I see it. And the first fear is the fear of escalation. Uh, and connected to this is the big debate that we have had in the West on uh, which kind of arms to, to send to Ukraine. Um, and there is a fear that uh, um, just the mere uh, signal that we would send this or this weapon system, take, for instance, uh, jet fighters or the tanks, uh, will cause Russia to escalate uh, the situation. Uh, and uh, among those fears are, of course, the American fear of a nuclear ex escalation, uh, which Russia has threatened uh, with uh, a couple of times during this conflict already. 
But then there is the more hidden fear, uh, which you can sense, for instance, uh, in Berlin, but I would say perhaps challenge a bit and that you can find it in Washington as well. And that is if we send all kinds of weapon systems and weapon systems that could reach uh, into uh, Russia, uh, you know, can we trust the Ukrainians that they will do this in a in a responsible way, or will that will their actions lead to an escalation that the West then will have to handle? So it's an escalation risk in in two dimensions. I think uh, one dimension is mere signaling, and the other dimension is what if something would really you know happen, and that we can we trust the Ukrainians uh, in this regard. And then, uh, so that is one fear, and that has dominated a lot of the discussion, and um, it has led to a complete lack of, of strategy, I think, I would argue, when it comes to what kind of weapon systems would we deliver. I, I take, uh, usually take this uh, analogy with Sweden. If Sweden uh, were attacked by Russia, we would be non-aligned as well, as it looks now at least. Um and you, you know, the West would unite and say, you know, we will support you. We will stand by you for as long as it takes. But, uh, you know, you are not allowed to use your jet fighters and you're not allowed to use your long range missile systems to hit back. And we will not provide you with anything like it. Uh, so how, how well can you actually uh, fight back? And do you really support uh, a country in the way you say you do uh, when you give this, can you, when you tie the hands to the back? Uh, so we need to, I think, to discuss this much more openly. Secondly, I would say there is a fear of uh, having Ukraine in the European family, as we call it. So this was a, a, a rhetoric that was heard a lot in, in Munich that uh, not least from the EU side, uh, where uh, Ukraine has gotten a fast track for uh, for the candidacy status, uh, status uh, and that Ukraine is part of the European family. Uh, and you can hear similar um, similar kind of uh, phrases uh, in the NATO context as well. But when you really scratch on the surface. Uh, there is, uh, I think, a lot of hesitation uh, and no real roadmap on how to proceed on this uh, because there needs to be changes in, in the rule of law and, and levels of corruption. Ukraine, who is pushing for a quick uh, accession process, realizes this as well. But uh, there is um, no clear, uh, honest debate in, in Europe uh, on how to how to do this, there were various propositions there. You know, you can include Ukraine and then work on things, or or how to do this. Um, I think there is a lack of honesty, and, and when it comes to NATO, uh, I think there is an open door policy, but really to include uh, Ukraine quickly, if if there would be a necessity for that, we are not ready for that discussion at all, and you could not hear it. So that's another big fear of of really letting Ukraine into the European family, so to say. So there's two, two fears, fear of escalation and, in a sense, fear of Ukraine. Fear of Ukraine's success. We'll, we'll come back to that, but put air quotes on the word success. What, what are the other two fears that you worry about? Then there is fear, and this kind of divides Europe a bit. There is a fear uh, of a defeated Russia. Uh, and that has to do, not least, you can hear it from uh, French uh, President Macron, uh, who has said that at, on various, uh, several occasions. 
uh, that, you know, Russia, of course, needs to be defeated in Ukraine. It doesn't want to see a Russian win in Ukraine, but Russia cannot be crushed. Uh, and this kind of goes back a little bit to the European concert uh, thinking in, in Europe, I would say, um, where you have some kind of implicit balance, uh, as you did in the, in the 19th, uh, early 20th century, uh, between the great powers of Europe and, you know, France, Germany, uh, Great Britain and Russia would be included in that. And if you, if you have too much of a uh, defeated regional power, uh, that power uh, risks coming back uh, in a, a, revan- a revanchist uh, mood, as did Germany after uh, World War I, for instance, is a, is a common uh, analogy. And that's not only France. You can hear that kind of thinking in, in, on continental Europe, uh, and and uh, but you don't really say it. So you say that uh, you know these kind of nuances that needs to be defeated or not crushed. And when you compare that to the fourth fear that I recognized, and that is the quite quite opposite fear, and that's the fear of a defeated Ukraine, which is uh, the other camp, you can say, uh, the more eastern camp in Europe those countries with a historical experience of uh, Russia or the Soviet Union um, and how, how, how uh, Russia and, and or the Soviet Union uh, uh, occupied territory in the Baltic states, Eastern Europe, Poland, uh, and, and so on. Um, and there, of course, there is a fear that if, if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, uh, Russia will only have appetite for more and be encouraged to continue this aggressive uh, expansion of its uh, sphere of interest and that they might be the next targets. So uh, that these two are almost opposite fears, uh, and but they need to be dealt with uh, within our common European uh, frameworks. And that's a challenge. I want to come back to some some of the specifics that you referenced, but first to put it in context, during the Second World War, the big three met regularly to define war aims, to agree on strategy. No one else had much of a say. The French weren't there. Uh, no, no one was there. But today, the West seems to suffer, at least with regard to decision-making, from a surfeit of democracy. Too many countries, too many leaders some with fundamental, as you've just suggested, some with fundamentally opposed views and perhaps interests, all of them in the room, in a sense. Is this any way to fight a war? Uh, well, it's it's a difficult question because, of course, you have to, these are, uh, we are democracies and we have to to uh, uh, acknowledge uh, public opinion in this, this regard. Um, and that brings a kind of a, uh, I think both a hesitation and also a short, uh, short-term perspective to the issues that that becomes problematic because the politicians tend to look at at the next opinion polls all the time, um, and how you overcome it. I think it really need, it really requires uh, political uh, leadership, and you can hear these kind of discussions as well, but not perhaps among. Um, the most leading countries. But, uh, you, for instance, Prime Minister Kallas of Estonia, I think, has been a clear voice on this, um, that you need to have this kind of dialogue uh, with others. I've been in, in uh, panels with uh, also, you know, Greek uh, defense minister. Others would acknowledge that we need to have a persistent 
a conversation with the public on why we need to sustain uh, Ukraine and why this needs to be this stopped. But yes. But, but I'm less worried about the public and more worried about the absence of a decision-making framework. I, I understand that the, the leaders of the Baltics, who are on the front line after all, have very strong views um, and, and want, they fall into the camp you described earlier of the most aggressive solutions. But I could imagine those meetings at, at NATO Council and elsewhere going on for years because everybody has a vote and you can't make decisions in in that that kind of circumstance, I don't think um, you do need leadership, but the process doesn't allow for leadership to evolve. How do you get a consensus? A consensus strategy, almost by definition, is an, is an oxymoron. That's provocative. But. Yes, uh, I mean a few a few uh, reflections on that. I think I mean what has surprised you mentioned it as well before, but I mean. Ukraine uh, surprised us. I think Ukraine has been uh, conducting a leadership uh, in a very interesting way, uh, addressing uh, parliaments and others and challenging uh, challenging the West from the start, actually, on what to do and why we haven't done more. Um, so uh, without that kind of spark and fire from Kiev, I don't think we would have been where we are today either. Uh, the second component, which is absolutely needed for some kind of decision making here, uh, has been the U.S. engagement in this conflict. Um, and that is for all Europeans to see. We have had a, a long, uh, many years of discussions on, on uh, European independence, uh, strategic autonomy within within Europe, uh, especially I think during the Trump years, this this blossomed. Uh, when there was both a feeling that uh, perhaps the U.S. interest in Europe was not that uh, big, and there were also disagreements on on uh, how to how to move forward politically, not least. Um, but that has that has changed with I think the Biden administration has been uh, very much uh, engaged. So that's a necessity. Uh, is it enough, as you suggest? Uh, uh, apparently no, <laughs> uh, because uh, the strategy is still still not there, uh, and I think we uh, we need to put some some more um, uh, what how can you phrase this? We need to put some more challenging uh, questions on the table. For instance, I mean, what is the uh, what is the future order when it comes to Russia, for instance? Um, will it even be possible to have Russia included in, in the European security architecture? Uh, or do we need to take some bold steps there? Um, the problem, I think, is that still I do not... Um, I've, I've been talking about this a lot with the Europeans. Could, could you know, the EU with only now France and Germany as the engines, as the UK have left, uh, could they, you know, pursue such a path where you uh, actually uh, not break with Russia, but put Russia kind of on the side of your of the core of Europe, and you 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 have structures where you you balance against Russia, and then from there on you have contacts with with Russia rather than the way we built it after the Cold War was to create all European structures where actually uh, Russia would be included everywhere, obviously still uh, built like that. 
uh, and basically um, this just has fallen apart without us really taking the consequences of it. Well, I think the answer to that question is no. I don't think that uh, Germany and France will be able to, to pursue such a path uh, because of this underlying idea that you always have among those countries that um, perhaps better, best described by saying that, you know, if Russia is excluded, it would also... Uh, in a way, reflect the decreased kind of power of France and Germany. Because if you if you define yourself as as all regional uh, European powers, Russia kind of needs to be there in a way in order to to also bring status to to France and Germany. You can see it in their uh, in the way they want to talk to Putin. Uh, everyone wants to call. Uh, you could ask why doesn't you know one person call him? But but this is the dynamic of the European politics. Uh, and therefore, I, I land in, you know, I come back to the United States as a, still a very important voice for Europe to come together. Um, and the UK cannot bring it either. It's not, it's not influential enough. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? Who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be? If so... Nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. Although it's clear the Americans don't have an answer to the endgame question either, or at least they haven't, if they have one, they haven't shared it. But let's talk a little bit more about consequences. I've recently heard chatter, both from very senior German uh, diplomats as well as from American general officers, that one of the consequences of this war, however it eventually ends, is that uh, Ukraine may end up with the largest, best outfitted, uh, most dynamic army in Western Europe, uh, including with its own defense industry, if some of these initiatives on the investment side actually occur, and that the real security guarantee structure for a post-war Europe, at least in this front, uh, is that, that Ukraine becomes the bedrock of um, Western security facing the Russians. Uh, And secondly, if that happens, then a kind of alliance, natural alliance between the Poles and the Ukrainians evolve, where you combine two really quite large countries, maybe both in the EU at some point, if not in NATO, Uh, but a lot of power, a lot of people, a rebuilt Ukrainian economy, I'm I'm a decade out now or something. And Poland and Lithuania and the rest of the Balts and Ukraine become the the opposite pole to the French and German uh, pole, if you will, in a new Europe. Does that make any sense to you? Is it, would it be a good development if it happened that way? It needs to be a powerful Ukraine in order to, to, uh, to balance Russia that closely. I mean, either, either, either Ukraine will be eaten by, by uh, Russia uh, or it, we need to boost Ukraine in order to withstand, uh, withstand Russia. And we, I mean, because Ukraine, the, the time where Ukraine, I mean, was a de facto kind of buffer state <laughs> in a way that its status was uh, 
left uh, up in, in the air to the comfort of, of Europe, uh, which, I mean, we had all these kind of question marks uh, regarding Ukraine, as, as we discussed before. I think that period is definitely over. And it's not only Ukraine, there will also be Moldova. Uh, we need to be able to, we, we will have to deal with uh, Georgia uh, if it's not too late um, and parts of, of the Balkans as well. And uh, that means that it needs to be boosted uh, from within. You can look at the way Finland built itself uh, after the end of, the, of World War II, for instance. Now they had a special pact with the Soviet Union, but still they had uh, uh, sovereignty, uh, even though little space of maneuver, but they built themselves uh, strong military uh, and prosperity from within and also their solidify their democratic uh, uh, institutions. So I think this this kind of um, this, no matter what else we can do, we can we can always I think support this uh, if if it's uh, if it's left like this, and that's the only way forward. But I would also think that we will have to face uh, the institutional discussions, both when it comes to EU and perhaps NATO. Uh, I mean, the only option would be for the U.S. to give uh, bilateral security guarantees. Perhaps the U.S. wants to do that with a special solution for Ukraine. But uh, otherwise, uh, we need to start thinking uh, about the NATO uh, enlargement process as well for Ukraine. NATO enlargement is on the table because of the Swedish and Finnish applications. The Finnish application is now going ahead. Sweden's application is held up by the Turks. Uh, I want to talk about Turkey in a second. Do you see, however, any resolution, near-term resolution for Sweden's membership? And does formal membership matter as much as it might have in the past? I have the impression there's a lot of work going on at the moment, as though Sweden is already a member of NATO. Well, I, I believe that uh, uh, there is, of course, in the short term, uh, now with that we have this uh, split or shift of strategy, you, you might call it. Uh, Sweden and Finland applied together and wanted to join NATO together. Um, if Finland now goes ahead uh, and the ratifications occur in, 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 in Turkey and, and Hungary, as, as, as they have indicated before Sweden, um, in the short term, um, you know, if it's a matter of months, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Uh, but uh, because both are uh, invitees and we are invitees at a um, already quite integrated level, you can say, uh, because we were uh, closest partners to NATO, both Sweden and Finland before, and there had been uh, you know, highly, uh, we were in, we were interoperable. We had exercised, we had planned, and we had even some plug-in mechanisms uh, connected to the graduate response planning already. Uh, and as invitees, this work has uh, proceeded even further. And both Sweden and Finland now have interim uh, NATO defense planning uh, targets, for instance. Uh, so this would, of course, uh, proceed this work uh, as it looks, but. Uh, I think, on the other hand, uh, there is a lot of uh, energy and political will to uh, that both Sweden and Finland should be um, members by the Vilnius summit in mid-July. 
Uh, and there are very good reasons uh, for having it uh, like that, because uh, the way NATO is now shifting even stronger towards deterrence and defense, the way it's implementing its new uh, uh, force uh, structure, its new force model, uh, how it generates its planning and how it prepares to kind of solidify NATO territory in light of, of Russia's uh, aggression towards Ukraine. Um, that that also um, would be sub suboptimal if Sweden does not become a, a, a full member. Um, so in that sense, um, there is a sense of urgency, awareness, uh, and I think uh, that allies... There already, I mean, 28 out of 30 allies, uh, if you turn turn this around, have already ratified and believe that Sweden is, base, you know, as good a member as Finland, uh, and that you know there is nothing more to do uh, in that in their light. Sweden is already a NATO ally, so I think also there is need to 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 move forward on this. Uh, otherwise, NATO might um, my, NATO appears weaker. Um, it is becomes also um, risks of being more fragmented, uh, having more problems of solving uh, certain things that needs to be solved when it comes to defense planning and, and deterrence. And uh, also, I would argue, resilience. I, I agree with all that, but it implicitly raises the question whether or not NATO might be better off with Sweden and Finland and without Turkey. I know that's heresy. Uh, I, I know that the NATO planners would, would, would be unhappy even to see it discussed. But Erdogan, and it's not just Erdogan's Turkey, but Turkey has been, one could make the argument, much more reliability than an asset for a long time. Could one of the possibilities that comes out of this mess be that everyone stands up and says, Turkey, you either play by our rules or you leave? It's that simple. Yes, I mean, when you, Turkey is, of course, a, as you say, for, for the NATO pla defense planning, an important player. And now with the war in Ukraine, also um, with the grain deal, its role there, its, its possible role as a negotiator with Russia and so on, uh, its, it's, it's position by the Black Sea. So, uh, so that is, that is uh, on one hand. On the other hand, uh, there are, um, you know, I have not heard as many reactions uh, on Turkey and, and uh, various uh, experts raising, you know, the possibility of of having uh, Turkey leaving uh, NATO uh, as I've had heard now. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see it coming uh, uh, in a realistic way, um, but. Uh, I think also it's up to, I mean, the interesting question for me here is, uh, what is Turkey's end game in all of this? Uh, you know, it has been connected to the Kurds. It has been connected to domestic policies that Erdogan has some kind of win in this. Um, but as, as, as this uh, behavior continues, if it continues to weaken uh, NATO, uh, and uh, it creates creates this wedge that only basically Russia um, profits from, since it's a fragmented, uh, weakened NATO. And you have Hungary as well with its close ties to to Russia. Then, of course, uh, you know um, 
also the most difficult questions needs to be to be asked around this. Let's just for a second move to the to the far north. I know you've done a lot of thinking and work on security in the Arctic, um, and that is the other space or another space where present, certainly future confrontation with Russia is entirely possible. The Russians have enormous resources deployed up there, um, the West somewhat less so. It goes back perhaps to your question, to, to your, it goes back perhaps to your observation earlier that there is this question of how to engage with or confront Russia after this war. Uh, the assumption underlying most of the policies in the high north was that we'd all work together on the Arctic. Is that still possible in, in, in a world that has been ripped up by this war? Well, the Arctic is special, as you say. I mean, there has always been this... Uh, um or there has been for long uh, amb ambition to have uh, uh, low tensions uh, in the Arctic uh, and to be able to, to work together those Arctic countries. And since Russia is the biggest Ar Arctic country, uh, there are, of course, uh, good reasons for that when it comes to search and rescue and, and uh, uh, the sea lanes of communication and all of that. Um, as it is now, I think... Um, this will still be uh, this will be the ambition, but uh, what I have argued for is that it, we also must be aware that we have to to cooperate from a position of strength, um, and that all goes also for for the Nord for the Nordic uh, for the Arctic. Uh, you have the Kola Peninsula where uh, Russia has uh, a majority of its second strike. Uh, capabilities, which is very important for Russia. Uh, you can also see if uh, when Sweden and Finland um, join NATO, the Baltic Sea will be, um, you know, more of NATO territory. So, so for Russia, I think they will strategically put even more emphasis, perhaps, on the Kola, Kola Peninsula compared to Kaliningrad, which will be kind of uh, an enclave that is really surrounded by 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 NATO. Um, so we need to think about it up there without, of course, uh, uh, creating more tensions. But uh, if you do it from a defensive uh, denial uh, position, uh, then I think there could be um, perhaps prospects for, for detente uh, further on as we also perhaps we hopefully see some kind of solution to, to, the, to Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, there definitely needs to be um, more, much more attention paid to what's going on in the Arctic because you also have uh, what we follow closely now, but we are not, I mean, it's hard to assess uh, in detail, but the Chinese-Russia kind of alignment uh, that, is, that is shaping um, the partnership without, without limits, as they say, this also plays out in the Arctic. So that's one of the areas where Europe might uh, notice this uh, the most, actually, uh, uh, apart from any possible uh, kind of uh, engagement from China in, in the conflict uh, between Russia and, and, or the war, Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, because the Chinese are much more um, engaged up in the Arctic, uh, but they also uh, 
to some extent dependent on Russia because China is not an Arctic state. So uh, China has no uh, territorial claims up there. They need to cooperate with the actors up in the Arctic in order to to secure their foothold up there. And, and then Russia is, of course, a very important partner for them. And presumably all of this makes NATO membership even more important in terms of Sweden and Finland as we think more and more in the future about the Arctic uh, and, and how to cope with the Russians up there. Let me end, though, um, with a totally unfair question. The war is more than a year old. Do you think we'll still be fighting it a year from now in your heart of hearts? Yes, I think so. Um, I wish I would. I wish I didn't. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, I think we need to be mentally. How hard ever it is, and we would hope for some kind of. Uh, now that uh, the West provides these more advanced weapons, that there will be some kind of um, uh, dynamic for the Ukrainians moving forward. Uh, there might be, and and perhaps that could leave some space for for uh, you know negotiations and so on. But I don't. I do not think that the war will be over in that way in one one year. Um, I don't think so. No. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much, Anna Weislander, for joining us on this podcast. Um, I wish we had more positive things to talk about and a better outlook, but realism matters at moments like this. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.